Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Paul Schulberg, a writer and director of feature films and a graduate of the MFA playwriting program at Indiana University. Paul Schulberg's directorial debut, The Good Catholic, starring Danny Glover and John C. McGinley, won the Panavision Spirit Award for Independent Cinema at the 2017 Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and it also won Best Screenplay at the same year's Milan International Film Festival. The Good Catholic follows a devoted young priest who unexpectedly falls in love with a college student he meets one day in confession. It's essentially the story of Paul Schulberg's late father, who left the priesthood to marry Schulberg's mother. Paul Schulberg also wrote the feature film Walter, starring Academy Award-nominated actors William H. Macy and Virginia Madsen, and Ms. White Light, which was also filmed in the Bloomington area. Ms. White Light marks Schulberg's second collaboration with Pegasus Pictures, an Indiana-based production company that hopes to cultivate the next generation of filmmakers in the state of Indiana. Recently, Paul Schulberg dropped by the WFIU studios for a conversation with Janae Cummings. Paul, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're from Kansas. Yes. And you have long made your home right here in Bloomington, at least 10 years. Um, actually, I live in Nashville. Oh. Um, Nashville, Indiana. Okay. But my wife works at Harmony School. We've been back here since 2011. I went to grad school here from 04 to 07 with my wife. We lived in New York for four years, and then we came back here when she got the job at Harmony because we had two kids while we were in the Bronx, and it's hard to have little kids in the Bronx. It's a lot of work. So we came back here to have something resembling easier life. Um, And then we moved out in the middle of nowhere. And I guess I'm a Hoosier now. Like I've been here total of over 10 years of my life. Yeah. So what drew you to Indiana? I mean, you're coming from Kansas, one flyover state to another flyover state. Why Indiana? It really came down. It was a very pragmatic decision when I was applying to grad schools for playwriting. I really wanted to be a screenwriter. And there were no programs for screenwriting that had funding other than very highly competitive scholarships at like NYU or something that I wasn't going to get. So I found that there are a couple playwriting programs, MFA programs that would be fully funded. And I had written a 10-minute play. (laughs) I've been writing screenplays constantly. I'd written a 10-minute play and I had a, a really good playwriting teacher at KU was able to get like three months ahead of the deadlines. And so I was like, I'm going to write a one act and I'm going to just try to get into the playwriting programs. So I applied to just the ones that had funding for grad school. And Dennis Reardon, who was the head of the MFA program at IU, contacted me and basically said, I'll take you on the strength of the screenplay that you submitted. (laughs) But you have a lot to learn about playwriting. It's like, really? (laughs) That's shocking um, being that I just started this. So he brought me in. The program was great. You're the only one that comes in in a year. It's changed since then. But at the time, they would never have more than two students in a three-year cycle. So for the first year, I was the only MFA playwright. And then I had another guy come in. But there was never a third playwright in the MFA program. So it was a very very unique program. I came here just, I'm going to be a screenwriter, and I'm just going to do the playwriting to get myself some time to just write. And I ended up getting completely roped into theater 
but that's how I ended up here was just randomly looking at the map and being like, who funds writing? <laughs> I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, which is, it's Bloomington yeah. in Kansas. And so I have this weird, most of my life I've been in a very liberal pocket of a very conservative state. I have a very bizarre understanding of the Midwest that I'm reminded every time I leave, I mean, just go up to Martinsville. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah drive 20 <laughs> minutes, yeah. Yeah, suddenly it's, it hits me that this isn't Indiana, this is just Bloomington. Right, right. When you were in the playwriting program, you said you got roped in the theater. So, you know, did you put screenwriting aside? Did you act? Did you start writing plays for the theater program? I wrote a ton of plays for actors when I got here. Um, if I'll backtrack again a second, I had a screenwriting teacher at KU. His name's Kevin Wilmot. He wrote uh, Chirac and The Black Klansman. He was my mentor all through undergrad, and he forced me to stage my screenplays, get actors come in and do a staged reading of it, because he knew that I wanted to direct. So he insisted that I work with actors, even though I'm a screenwriter, because usually screenwriters and then film directors, their biggest weakness is they get on set and they don't know how to talk to actors at all. They're kind of removed from the process. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of times actors expect, I mean, they don't like it, I don't think, but they expect to get nothing from their director. They show up and do the work. There are directors, very famous, very successful, very good directors that don't really do a whole lot with actors. They'll place them, but they, you know, there are directors that really don't. Sitting there and like talking about motivation and stuff is not necessarily how it works with film all the time. The indies, it's usually different. He had me doing that and I got really hooked on working with actors. So the transition from playwriting to screenwriting, it just made sense because I really loved giving scripts to actors and then hearing them say those words. So I would write a, a play and I'd always find six or seven actors and put a reading together. We'd find some room on campus and then like six people would show up and it was great. You mentioned that you hadn't been writing screenplays very long, uh, writing plays very long. Uh, when you applied to uh, these MFA programs, when did you first become enchanted with storytelling? When I turned 18, I was a D student uh, high school. I never really, I knew I wasn't like dumb. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I knew I wasn't like a complete moron. I was capable of getting better grades, but I didn't see the point of any of this. I decided I wanted to be a guitar player because I was 18 and that seemed like a thing to do. So I played guitar like from the time I graduated high school. I went to college, but I was not a good college student. I had like 13 different majors in my first year, but I, all I did was play guitar around the clock. And I did that for a couple years and I went out to LA to some guitar, one of those, like it's just a very expensive school that anyone could go to, but it sounds cool. And I was young enough to think that I had accomplished something. Went out there and realized right away. I got around a bunch of musicians and realized I was, I was going to be a hack. My poor parents, who paid for me to go out to this school, I started skipping. And I stayed home and I was watching like two or three movies a day. And I realized, it hit me, I think I would have been 20 or 21 at this time, that I was more interested in the narrative of being a musician than the music itself. Just this like romanticized yeah, life. Yeah, and, I, and then I realized that every aspect of my life, I was more interested in the movie version of it. And I, I was watching movies constantly. Two a day would be normal for me. I was still a failed musician. I was still trying to do that, but I just wrote a, a monologue from the perspective of a failed musician. That was cathartic and I had something to say and I felt something. With music, I never had anything to say. I was just trying to be good at it. Yeah. And it, it made sense. And I just kept writing. 
And by the time I was done with that screenplay, I hand wrote it in a notebook. Music was just, it killed it just in like three months. And I, from that day forward, I've been writing constantly. What happened to that screenplay? I ended up typing it up onto a, the first iMac. It exists. It's called College Town. It's about a musician in a college town. That's the most exciting part about it. it it's really, it's a terrible script. It's pop culture references wall to wall. But it's the thing that got you going. It got me going. And when I gave it to people, they laughed. There's a voice in there. It's a terrible script, but like there's life in it. And that's the kind of thing that as someone that I read a lot of screenplays and a lot of writers will send me scripts. And when you do see somebody with a spark, all the other stuff they can figure out. You can learn structure. You could learn everything. But if they got a spark... Can't teach that. They have a spark and a voice and a point of view. Now, if they're bad at dialogue, they might need to find either actors that can correct that through improv or find a writing partner that's good at dialogue. But if you have a voice and something to say, I mean, that usually comes later. You know, when you're in your early 20s, there's not a lot. At least I didn't. When I see people that are doing great stuff in their early 20s, I get so jealous because I was just saying nothing at the time. But that spark, it's there. It's buried under just a bunch of garbage, but it's there. And when I don't see it, I worry if that person is going to not necessarily make it, because I know people that make it that there's several paths to making it in the film industry that has nothing to do with me liking your work, because <laughs> there's plenty of work that, but like something that's exciting to me. What I think of as success is the indie filmmakers that I consider like they've made it would not even be considered successful by a lot of standards in Hollywood. And the people that are making these huge franchise movies, I have no interest in them. They're power players, and I, I just don't view that as interesting. They have a lot of money, and I would love to have some of that. But when I say that I see like a spark in someone, if you really work hard, you might be able to make $18,000 a year for the rest of your life. It's nice to get philosophical about money and stuff like that. Like, my heart of hearts, I know what I like and what I think is good art, and that's all that matters to me. But there are, like, several hours out of every day where I have doubts. How do you combat that? For example, right now, I'm, I'm trying to work my way into some genre filmmaking. I like horror thriller stuff, but I really like the ones that do it with an artistic bent. I've just finished a script that is a revenge thriller set in the woods, my goal was to make it so these characters are characters you would enjoy in a non-thriller. It's not like you don't really know these people and then they just start getting... And they're jump scares and right, we're right. running through it, yeah. You invest in these characters and there's a real love story there and there's real depth to it, but all the good stuff happens too. And so I'm trying to be responsible as a filmmaker and be like, I'm going to ask for money, spend that money and make a movie. If the scares are there, I can find an audience that doesn't care about the stuff that, <laughs> that I love in all movies. There's more room for people to come to the movie if I execute the genre elements of it. So I'm actively trying to work my way into thriller horror just so I can reasonably go to a producer and say, yeah, I know how to make movies for very little. So if I can make it for this budget, the odds of recouping are much, much higher than on the movie I just made that's about death. Right. <laughs> and we haven't talked about those movies yet, which seem to focus on religion and or religious aspects to them and, and death. But 
how or why are you hoping to make this transition to genre film? Is there something where, you know, it's more likely you can get a movie made or is this what you're really passionate about? There's a movie called Blue Ruin that came out a few years ago that really blew me away. It, it's, it's like they made it for 435 grand. The guy made it on his own. And it's a genre film, but it subverts the genre. There's just a depth to it. You really care about the characters. If nobody got killed, I would have been engaged the whole time. And seeing that really kind of opened my eyes to other avenues of filmmaking where you challenge yourself a little more. Because it, having made The Good Catholic and just finished making Miss White Life, I want to go on set and not know how I'm going to... I need to know how I'm going to shoot the scene. But I, I want to... I want that fear of not having a system down exactly how this is going to work. Yeah. And I, I want to just keep challenging myself. And it's a genre that I happen to really like. I'm not a big sci-fi guy. And I don't like slasher films at all. I like a lot of off-camera violence. Like a sound is to me way creepier. I don't like to see somebody getting like their leg cut off or something. That's not interesting to me. But the good versions of those movies I think are very... They're really exciting to me. It's, it's, Can you I, give us some examples of those? Well, all right. So Blue Ruin and then his uh, his name is Jeremy Saulnier. He, he did a Green Room was his follow-up, another great film. You should check these movies out there. They're amazing. In The Shining, where you could just look at a frame and just have a camera slowly tracking in, and nothing's happening. But it just gets scary. The, that that scary. tension. Uh, there's a movie called The Witch that every single frame of that movie, I didn't know when it was going to happen. And then actually when the stuff started happening is the only time in the movie where I was like, eh. All the stuff leading up to it, the tension, it's exciting. The scary element is just this slow building tension and I love that. Just to add that element to filmmaking, I really, it's very exciting to me. Writer, director, Paul Schulberg. In conversation with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. You graduated from the MFA program in 2007. Yep. And then you headed to the Bronx? We did Brooklyn for a year, and my wife was teaching public school, but she was always teaching in the Bronx, and that was a really terrible commute. It was rough. So we ended up living across the street from the school she was teaching in in the Bronx for the last three years we were there, which is kind of nice to be. I mean, she could just walk to school. Did you go there at all to kind of make these connections with screenwriting? I went there thinking I was at that point after three years of really good playwriting instruction. I went there thinking I was going to be a playwright. Going to New York, I'm going to be a playwright. I'll work my way back into film at some point in time. My thesis play at IU was set on a film set. It was called Real, like R-E-E-L. So it was clearly still like there, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to go be this artistic poet. And real quick, the realities of that world set in, and I, that dream was dead in about a year of being there, just looking at the realities of playwriting. It's not really a field. The people that are doing well immediately jump over to TV playwrights just do that now. Why is that? There's not much money in theater. There's At any point in time, there might be four or five playwrights making a living just doing playwriting. Musical book writers, if you have some huge, you know, Wicked or something, yeah, you're doing all right. But straight up plays, like off-Broadway stuff, 
that is a tough racket unless you parlay it into film and I mean the the idealized that romanticized version like you can be Arthur Miller and just whip out these plays and live this glamorous life and have Marilyn Monroe and everything is wonderful for you and so no that's surprising so you just said Arthur Miller can you name a playwright under the age of 40 (laughs) absolutely not exactly nobody can except for people that are in that world Unfortunately, theater is just not nationally relevant for economic reasons. I mean, how can you expect anybody that isn't wealthy to come to something where it's $50 a ticket for an hour and a half of entertainment when you could go get it for $2.99 on demand? Part of what really started to bother me about theater is how it's a very highly liberal group of people writing politically very liberal pieces for very liberal audiences. I could handle an echo chamber. It's worse than that. It, it's it's a room full of very wealthy people going, oh, that is... This that affirms is, everything that I is ever t- Yes, like in a weird way you get a catharsis that I don't think is healthy. If that hour and a half at the theater isn't going to lead to something else, uh, you feel like you've gone through a story, but you really have just watched somebody that just came out of Carnegie Mellon express their concerns about a societal thing and you're in like look just look around look to your left and right who are you talking to and what is this changing not to say that movies are changing in the world you know but like the theater community is the cost of those ticket prices it's just there's no way to say that it's not a very elitist group and i don't know how to rectify that if you're playwright living in the bronx like where we were living in the bronx no one in that neighborhood is going to your play no one. Like they're trying to get by. They're not even going to know that that play, you're not You're not putting up a poster there. And I'm not disparaging to, like, if you're a playwright and you're doing it, great. But just as a system, the relevance of it just, it can't really be relevant to anyone other than very wealthy people in New York. Yeah. Maybe Chicago. And there's lower budget theater, but it's all, like, the people that aren't rich that are going to theater in New York in Chicago are people that are aspiring actors and writers. That's who's going. It's not like the public is going. There's so many people coming out of theater programs around the country, and they're all going to these cities, and that's who's supporting the lower-budget stuff. It's not community. It's something else. One of the things I love about, specifically talking about thrillers and horror films, people still go to the theater to see them because there's a community feeling of being scared. That's why they still do well. Like horror films, Blumhouse, the studio that they make most of them, and they make them all for $5 million or less. And every fifth one becomes a hit, and every, like, 15th one becomes a mega hit. And every once in a while, they'll do, like, an art house film. They'll kind of sneak in there. But there's a community there. You go to watch a horror film in the theater, you are with everyone, and that is not the case with any other genre of film anymore. Some comedies, but that's not really... The studio comedy right now is... That genre is just not... I don't think it's very exciting. There's not, like, indie dramas where people are packing the theater and, like, oh, you know, like, it happens. You can get those experiences, but in general, it's horror and thrillers that are getting people to come to the theater, and it's accessible anywhere in the country. It's not cheap to go to a movie, but it's It's cheaper. It's cheaper, yes. So that, to me, feels like a relevant art form. I'm excited to create in that area because I do have certain political, not agendas, but things that I would like to express. And 
if I do it in genre, people will hear it. People that aren't coming to hear it will hear it. I'm not really excited about talking to people that are exactly like me with art. Right. I need them. But to me, unless you're expanding, you're, you're, what are you doing? Yeah, well, the point should be to make an impact and to touch people's lives. Yes. And that's why Get Out specifically is super important because it's hitting every quadrant. Not everyone's seeing the same movie when they see Get Out. But people are thinking. Thinking, and, and I've never had an experience going, yeah. like that in the theater before. Right, right. I've never been sitting there going like, I'm the villain. This is crazy. Just flipping perspective. That's all you're doing. People are only there because it hits the genre beats. If you take all that away, it's just a good film that isn't going to pull in any young people or, you know, it's not going to create that excitement. And there was excitement in the theater. Like, I have not experienced. I mean, packed out weekend after weekend. And going to see it in a, I saw it in L.A. And it was very, imagined different than if I would have seen it in Bloomington, a very different experience. And it was it was awesome. It was a brilliant move to make that. And again, they're making horror films, this company, Blumhouse, over and over again. So they got their brand down. And for them to be like, as long as you make it, <laughs> like as long as it works in the genre, like, yeah, get your message across. That's great. Because horror is so relevant, I think that's the best vehicle to tell stories right now. I mean, as far as if you really want to reach an audience. So we talk about Get Out. I mean, is that the kind of film that you would like to make? The kind of... I don't know. I felt like Get Out was extremely subversive, which made it outstanding. Is that what you're kind of going for? Get Out specifically, if I wrote Get Out, it doesn't mean as much as if Jordan oh, right. Get course, Out. <laughs> yeah. And I'm aware of that. And I feel like the thing that I'm most excited to do, and I think the thing that I can offer the privilege that I have, is that when I go meet with people to get money for films, they look at me and they're like, yep, you look like a filmmaker. There's nothing about you that looks different than every other filmmaker that I know. You know, like, and so I have that advantage. I don't have the advantage of having any money or any power, but I do have that advantage, just the straight white male privilege advantage. And the big thing I have is when I, I could write scripts that get people excited. I have all the leverage as long as the script is mine because they can't get that. They can't just go write a script. They need it. So if I hold on and I stay on as a director then I can have control over casting. And that's where I feel like I could create the most space for other people. Um, what we did with Miss White Light, it was Mr. White Light at one point in time. And we decided to switch genders of the lead and then cast a female of color, like no matter what. And it was really weird. I thought that would be like, a, yeah, just casting director, here you go, send us a list. Every agency sent, first pass, every agency sent three or four women of color. And then it was like just all the same white women that they sent for good Catholic. The notes were hilarious because we'd go back and be like, we specifically, like, I'm casting a woman of color for this role. And she has a dad, so they both have to be, she's not going to have a white dad either. Like, that's not, we're not doing that. And they would send stuff like, they'd send like a, very white red and it's like, well, she's she's actually 164th Argentinian. It would say that in the notes. I was like, do your job. <laughs> well, I think what's troubling and fascinating is that you're trying to do the right thing. 
And these casting agents. No, 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 the casting director was great. Okay. So, yeah, our casting director, she's the one who did, uh, her name is Gail Keller. She did Big Sick. She does all these things out of New York. She's great. She got it. But the agencies, the right. big agencies, they're the ones that they send these these lists. And so they're trying to say, like, it's so funny right now. There's this whole, like, panic that people, I don't know if anyone knows about this outside of the industry, but there's this whole panic right now in Hollywood. If you go, you're out there and you talk to people, writers, actors, directors, where nobody wants white people for any of the roles anymore. Nobody wants white writers in the TV rooms. It's like, it's a panic. That's sad. It is, because if you still look at what's getting made, and now it's like shifted from 98% white to like 94% white. And it's like, oh, God, what are we going to do? <laughs> and when I talk to managers and stuff out there, they will sit down and say like, hey, just so you know, I can't even send you anywhere because TV writers can't be white dudes anymore. I'm just like, okay, but why are all the TV writers white dudes still? And they're like, well, they have one spot on each staff. And sometimes that is funded outside of the studio. So they're not even paying for that spot. They're writer of color, or they're, they're diversity hire, they call it. Yeah. And so they have one slot that is not even really, like, again, they're getting, like, grants and stuff to, like, staff that. So it's an extra spot. To do the bare minimum. To do the bare minimum, and then they let, they don't promote them, so they just keep having to go from, like, the lowest staff writer to lowest staff writer type of thing. And white people are legit complaining, terrified. And these are very liberal it, it's, but it's a real thing. But I think the disconnect between highly liberal elitist people and what they say and what they do. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing where I have to look at things and say, I have to direct my films. I'm not giving that spot up. I'm not in a position where I can anyways. Like if I make a first year teacher salary off filmmaking, that's a great year. I'm like really excited. So... But I can control the casting, and the person we cast as the lead in Miss White Light, I was rewarded a thousand times over by casting someone that isn't the typical person you would cast in that kind of role. She knocked that out of the park. If she was a straight white male, she would be like Ryan Gosling level success. She's got every tool that an actor needs, and... Just It was an honor to be able to get to demand different people coming into the room. And the crazy thing was I got, audition-wise, we had people that were way bigger than the project auditioning. Once we got it in their heads, like, we are not, do not send us any more Gilmore Girls or whoever, <laughs> like, just, like, you know, whatever it is, like, like, great actors, but we specifically said this is what we wanted. The amount of talent that we're willing to read that normally would be, you, you don't know who the director, I'm an unknown director. We certainly don't have money. So usually in that situation, it's tough to get known actors to, I mean, they, you might be able to win them over with a script, but they're not going to read for you. It's offer only for bigger names. And some still did that, but the talent that came in to read, it was just like, Wow. And this is because you're getting a lead role that's nuanced, that normally would go... It was written for a white man. You get to do all that stuff. You get to do the stuff where it's not about the struggles of being a woman of color. You just get to do stuff and, like, be funny and, and make mistakes and be a, a lead, a real nuanced lead character. People get really excited about that, and you realize, wow, if you're reading for me and you don't know who I am, 
you're not getting very many opportunities to do this kind of stuff because there are a lot of casting and stuff is getting more diverse. If you look on Netflix shows, everyone's got like a best friend of every demographic. It's that fake diversity where it's like you're not developing a project for this actor. You're just you're making them the best friend of. Well, and they're never a developed character. They're really flat right. and. Or right, and it's like now you're playing the poorly developed white female character. Now, now you you get to do that and not be white. Like the character still sucks, <laughs> and you don't get to do the fun stuff. So that's the kind of thing that I know I can control that. Now I'm not even with the scripts. I'm just sending it in as, like, when I write a script, I'm creating it in a way that if you give the character's last name Mendoza, they have to, like, ask you if they can send you white actors. They also have to ask you if they could send you black actors. But you're at least saying, like, hey, just so you know, this is something... I know that I could control, if I get them to like the script, the last two scripts I've written have been two female leads in love stories. And it has nothing to do with the struggles of being a lesbian at all. Nobody wants me to explore that. Right. <laughs> like, I'm not, I have no, like... That's not your story no, to tell. No, but it's a love story. And I make it two women so I could cast two women. That's why. That's the only reason I'm doing that. So I can create space for actors. I know I could do that. I'm trying to do that with crew, casting crew. It's very hard to find at our budget. If you find someone you like that will work at these budgets, you're not going to walk away from, you've started building these relationships, you need them. And so I don't think we've done a, as good of a job as we can with like having a, a diverse casting crew. It's very hard to find anyone that can do these jobs in Indiana, period. We're not yet at the point where I feel like we can, we're as at least the films I've worked on have been as diverse as a crew as I would like them to be. And as I hopefully move on to bigger things, I will have more control over that. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Paul Schulberg, the writer and director of The Good Catholic and Ms. Whitelight, both films made in collaboration with Pegasus Pictures, an Indiana-based production company that hopes to cultivate the next generation of filmmakers in the state of Indiana. Paul Schulberg is speaking with Janae Cummings. I'm curious about filmmaking in Indiana. You have collaborated, I think, three times with Pegasus Pictures. Uh, Am I wrong? Two, my, the first one that I wrote was a different uh, um, Purple Bench Pictures. Was They were an Indiana company. And then the last two films have been Pegasus. Okay. What is it about making films in Indiana? Why? Why not uh, go to Georgia? Why not go to New Mexico where where filmmaking is probably easier and more diverse? Initially... I, you know, I was going to do The Good Catholic in Kansas. I did that whole film to honor my my dad who had passed away, and he spent all of my life living in Kansas. The two guys that run Pegasus were from Indiana, and we were going to do it that way, and it hit us at one point, like, this would be easier to do because the film was so low budget that the tax, there wasn't a tax credit in Kansas either, so it didn't, that wasn't really a factor. But the whole thing about going to Georgia or New Mexico, you get those tax credits, at that small of a budget, 
we thought we could make up way more than the tax credit by doing it on a home turf where we could go and like get locations and get deals with a lot of people. And we did. On Good Catholic, that really, that made sense. You know, I'm, I'm really torn. I know that Pegasus is very much like we're an Indiana film company. We want to hire only Indiana people. We want to do that. And that's awesome. That is their number one mission. And I love Indiana and I feel like, well, I love Bloomington. That's all I really know. I hate a lot of what the rest of the state is doing. And so I am more torn about the mission's less, um, is more nuanced from my end where I'm, I'm trying to decide their theory, and I like it, is that if you create art in these communities, you can change the makeup of these. Like, I mean, Georgia, the, the tax credit in Georgia specifically has, that state is trending to purple, I guess, or whatever. And I think it's directly as a result of that tax credit. There's like a, like a mini Hollywood out there, and that makes a huge difference. And if that's how this goes, that's awesome. I mean, if anything that could bring in more people to the state that are different, because you can't have everyone fling, and then this is how we end up where we are. I do have this weird relationship where I'm like, also like, well, the government doesn't want to support the arts at all. So should we go somewhere where they care more about this stuff? It's tough. I haven't had to really confront, like we haven't gone into small town Indiana, I haven't, and made a film. Bloomington's been so welcoming and so open to everything. And like the mayor is supportive. Like the city, like government, local government has been great. So that to me, that's where Indiana is exciting, just to watch this community come around. But there is part of me that feels like I can't walk around with an Indiana flag waving it, talking about how great this state is, because it's not. There are great people in the state. There are great cities in this state. There are great people in terrible places in this state. But the state has so much work to do, and the state has a lot to be ashamed of politically, and I want to see that change. I can't call myself a Hoosier filmmaker because of those things politically. And I know like that might upset some people, but I can't be all in on a state that won't let my sister get married. I have issues with that. So it's kind of fascinating, this whole like working with Pegasus because their mission is great and it's gone very well. We've had a great working relationship and we'd like to work with them again. But as they continue and I continue, I will be interested to see what the missions are. I have goals with my films that are politically very specific and I'll be interested to see how that works in with the mission of sticking with Indiana at the same time. I think it's an interesting thing and I hope that that works. But kind of in the vein of sticking with Indiana, when uh, you made your first feature film, Walter, yeah, that wasn't filmed in Indiana, was it? They shot one week in Indianapolis for exteriors, but it was all mostly shot in L.A. So at the time, from what I understand, you were working at Blooming Foods. For and... both, yeah, for both Walter and The Good Catholic. I took a month off, went to L.A., never been on a film set before, and fly out to L.A., sit there, watch them make a film for a month, come right back. In fact, I was back working at Bloomingfields while they were shooting the exteriors an hour away in Indianapolis. I was already back at work. With Good Catholic, I remember sitting in my car on a lunch break talking to casting director and like being like, yeah, like I think, you know, Danny Glover, that'd be great. You know, just having these conversations like it was my office in the parking lot of Bloomingfields. We finished shooting and I went back to work there. 
while we were editing the film, I was working at Blooming Food still. How do you navigate those two worlds at once? Really weird and hard to have a student PA working for you on set and then to be working at Blooming Foods and have them come in and you're working for them. You know, I would say it was humbling, but I feel like at this point in life, like I'm so beaten down that I just always assume like everything's going to go away the next day. So I'm always in that mindset. It was very strange for people to come in and be like, aren't you the guy that I saw in the paper? And, you know, you're stocking yogurt. You're, you know, it's a very weird thing. But, you know, it's work. You know, you got to stay alive. So you just one story that sums it up really well, though, an old professor from IU from grad school, walked in and talk about a humbling experience. This is like the perfect example of why you, it's, it's useful after making a film, but he came in and he was like, you work here? And I was like, yeah. And I started to explain like the economics of independent film. And he's just like, oh, are those apples on sale? He just came up to me like, you're just a guy that works here. Not asking like, oh, you work here. He was literally asking if I work here. Like, will you help me, sir? <laughs> And I, I just realized right away, like, nobody, like, everyone's just there to get their apples. It's not about you <laughs> when someone comes in and gets rice. Like, it really isn't. Nor should it be about you when you're on set either making a film. And so, like, having that happen at the same time, it just really lets you see that in a good way that you're not special. Just making a movie or stocking apples, you're still, you still work and you still just got to, like, put your head down and do it. And it's... Useful reminder, I'm glad to not be doing it right now. But I know that I'm always six months away from <laughs> having to go do something like that again. You write these screenplays, these words, and then William H. Macy, for instance, or Danny Glover acts out those words, and you guide them through your vision. What is that like? It's crazy. It's really strange. So with William H. Macy, I wasn't the director on that. But just having him pull me aside and say, hey, Paul, I wanted to change this. You say and here, but I think it might be easier just to not say the and. Is that okay? I'm going to have William H. Macy ask me that. He's like, yes, yes, yes sir. Uh, yes. On Walter, the first time around, I was so, as especially just being a writer on set, you really are kind of a useless thing. You do like 10 minutes of work a day. Once the script's done, you're there. And every once in a while, people have a question, but usually you're just sitting there eating and looking at monitors and being like, that's good. That, they did a really good job. It was surreal, that whole experience. It just, I was shocked. I never got used to it. Um, it was just insane. When you're directing, you're worried about so many things. There are moments when you first see Danny Glover sitting across from you. It's, how did this happen? But the minute you start working on the text... There's so much work to do. So many questions and answers and elements that I have to worry about that I'm just trying to get it right. And that goes away really fast. And then it's just work. And then you could step back and be like, I can't believe this happened. But as a director, there's so many things you are responsible for. You just don't have time during the thing to... to, There's no time to You shouldn't be processing that. You should just be worrying about, like, are you getting what you need? Like, stepping back, it's it's kind of fun to look at. I just keep thinking my kids are going to one day think this is cool. They don't now. They're, you know, seven and nine. So they're just waiting for something to be animated or whatever. <laughs> you know, but I keep thinking like, oh, maybe you know, one day they'll look at this and be like, wow, that's kind of crazy. I don't know. They might never. I have no clue. 
writer-director Paul Schulberg. Speaking with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. When you film The Good Catholic here in Bloomington, are there any are there any stories that stick out to you from that time? Oh, God, The Good Catholic was... We had so little time to prep. My favorite thing from The Good Catholic was when we needed a shot where they were walking around the square, and it was... The lights had been on while we were scouting, but they were going to turn them off because the holidays were over. Cook Medical like is in charge of that, and they got them to like keep the lights on through all the production for that. And I remember standing out there, and somebody, the old manager from Blooming Foods, walked by. It was like, oh, my God, this is so great. You're doing this, and the lights were on. And I was just like, yeah, like this is crazy. This is – that was sort of like a, kind of a full circle but then I was back working at Bloomy Foods two weeks later, so it was like full, I guess, a full figure eight <laughs> when the circle goes back around. But that was a moment where I really felt like, because they had heard me talk about, you know, I'm making this movie, I'm going to do this from the time I started writing it. It's a year and a half, two-year process. And so they, these everybody there working knew that I was doing this. So it was really cool to... To be able to have it just just the way it worked out, it felt like one of those like movie moments where like the lights are literally on in the square while I'm running into her because of this movie. It just felt like that was a nice moment. Like you, you get a few of those, I think, <laughs> in your life, and that was that was a good one. Well, also, I mean, in a town like Bloomington, where so many creative people live and are, you know, someone's always writing a song or working on a screenplay or writing a play, to actually see that come to fruition. Yeah, for a friend. because I know a lot of, I got a lot of friends and I've been that friend where it's like, you're talking about this thing that never happens. Like it just doesn't happen. That's, that's so many people, especially in these college towns. Yeah. It's the same in LA and New York, but in the college towns, like, you know, all the people that like, these are the 12 guys, you know, that want to be novelists. You do see a lot of sitting around Soma, like, I'm going to do this thing. And it just doesn't happen. Somebody came up to me. It was another person at Blooming Foods, like, came up and said, you actually did it. I didn't think you were going to do it. You did it. That's amazing. That doesn't happen. It's tricky because when you're in L.A., everyone is pushing you. When I go out there, I, the amount of energy I have to have to just hustle, like, if you look at your calendar and you're like, oh, there's a three-hour gap here. What am I doing? Like, that's not happening here. You know, if I have a meeting, just a meeting, like, this, this is my day. <laughs> like, I did, I did, this is great. Like, this is a whole day. It's good and it's bad. I like, I do like the pace of life here. It is nice, but it can be a little too easy on artists. It's easy to get comfortable here. Very easy. It's a college town trap. You know, I grew, again, I born and raised in one, so I know it can be a trap, but anywhere it can be a trap. You could live a very different, like we moved here from the Bronx for a reason. This feeling all the time, hustling just to get by every second is not a healthy like state of, you know, I'm 41 years old. Like in my early 20s, maybe I could live off of that. But now it's just, I just feel the, I feel the work that comes with that. So you can walk around Bloomington and not feel that every second, which is nice. I'm curious about your creativity process. I thought I'd seen you say that you're not a writer, for instance, if you're not writing every day. 
What are you doing every day to make sure that you stay so fresh? That's definitely like. I do think you're not a rider if you're not. So when I say riding every day, that can mean I, I go in modes where I'm actually like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do X amount of pages on this script every day for the next however. But then there's times where I am actively working an idea in my head and I know that I'm going to be better served by watching a couple movies that are kind of touching around that. Like I, I've seen so many movies, whatever I'm into, like if I'm just like, I don't know how to start this movie. I know what the movie is. I don't know the opening scene. I know seven other movies that have an opening scene that are kind of touching on kind of how I want it to be. So I'm going to go watch those seven movies over the next three days. And that's writing to me. It's active writing. Um, and there are times where you just, because I just finished a script. I've written two feature scripts over the last four months. And I had these mapped out because I'm hoping to, I've got like, I'm trying to line up some directing stuff, which eats up. You're doing nothing. When you start directing like that, that kills writing. You just have to turn that part of your brain off. So I'm trying to, I have these ideas I've really wanted to get out. So I just really wrote a lot over the last four months. And so now I'm just like, I don't need to write for a while. I've got an idea in my head that hit me last night, and I was just like, oh, man, this is my next movie. I don't even know what this is about, but I got this idea. Usually for me, an idea is it's really a character. I got a character that I love. I have plot ideas that have always been there coming and going, and if I find a character I love, I'm like, oh, can I stick them into that movie? Or what about that movie? Or do I need to create an entire new thing? If I love a character and I could find one great scene to put them in, I will find a way to honor that character and get them a full script. And once I get going on that, then I'm like my little Mac calendar and I've got page counts I want to hit and it keeps adjusting, not in the good way. <laughs> it's never like, oh, I did more than I was supposed like it, it keeps adjusting, but usually once I lock in, the first 10 to 20 pages can take, there are times where that could take like six weeks, even two months if I'm really focused. And, and once I get about 20 pages in, the last 70 to 80 pages are going to take me four or five weeks total. If I get going, sometimes I get lucky. Like Good Catholic, I wrote in six weeks. It just all came in one wave, and like about 85% of that first script was the final draft. Is that because so much of it was inspired by your parents' relationship? I think because I'd been thinking about that, yes. There are other stuff that comes from real life, but I haven't been structuring it. In my head, I'd been thinking about it. And once I sat down and started writing, I realized I was just channeling kind of my dad's vibe. And it just pushed through the whole thing. And that happens sometimes. I've written stuff where it's like ridiculously fast. It's just all there. And then other times where it just takes, I write the first 10 pages over and over again because I know the kind of movie I want to make and it's not getting there. Yeah, it, it always starts with, with the character. I do sometimes I come up with an idea that's like, God, that's a great I, like you, you always want to come up with a especially with low budget filmmaking. Like how can I do something in two locations? What about one location? What about is there no locations? Is that possible? <laughs> you're just like you're always thinking, can I do it with one actor? Can I do it with no actors? Can I do it with, with negative actors? Um if you come up with an idea that's like, wow, that would be really easy to shoot if I could find a story that works with that. Those always linger around, but if I start from there, it always fails. Even if I get 30, 40 pages in, if I start from a concept, like a plot or a, a world, it will fail. I have to figure out the character. 
And then I could put that character in any of these things and it's good. But if I'm not coming from character, it will die. It will feel derivative. It'll feel like the world's dictating the character. And I always go character first. I write thinking about actors. That's the most important thing for me, the text and the acting. That comes from, I think, studying theater. That to me is what film is, not... And most filmmakers, I think, go the other... Not most, but like a lot of filmmakers come from world building and visuals, and then they learn about working with actors as a secondary thing, and I kind of I do it the other way. When I watched The Good Catholic, I really felt like it would make an outstanding play. Is that something you would do? You know, it's one of those things... Like I know how I would do it if I did it as a play. Like I would structure it around the homilies and do more with those and really have them be like monologues to the audience. I've been asked by a couple people, but it was just like, this is going to be a lot of work and I don't want this to debut at some place that no one's going to go to. You know, like it's just one of those, I would like to do that. It's a weird, usually you go the other way. I would do it if I thought that there was a theater company that would do a good job of it and it would make sense. I've always been accused of my movies are too talky and my plays are too, they jump around, they're too cinematic. So <laughs> I'm like in this weird spot, but that's what I like. I think plays where they just sit on the couch for 90 minutes are really boring. And movies, long, rich character scenes where you can let them breathe and let them act. That's what I like. So I'm in this weird middle ground, but it, I've, I've come to terms with that's just what I do. So instead of trying to change it, you know. Just roll with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Paul Schulberg, an Indiana-based writer and director of feature films like The Good Catholic and Ms. Whitelight. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. Are there any actors out there who you would want to write for or you have had in mind for roles? Oh, man. Yes. I would love to, like, write something for Maya Rudolph. I think she's the funniest person alive. One of my scripts I'd written, I was like, oh, this is my Rudolph role. And it turns out it's so similar to something. Not that I would ever, you know, I'm not saying I could get to Maya Rudolph, like, who knows. But I wrote something and it's, and she's on a show where she plays a character that's similar. And I was just like, well, you can't do that now. But like, oh, because my Rudolph's great. But um, I'm kind of obsessed with this actor, John Early. Do you know John Early? That name's familiar. Do you, but... Have you seen Search Party? Yes. He's the blonde guy. He's the one that's, like, lying about yeah, having yeah. a... Yeah, He has this thing on Netflix. They have these one-person, like, skit things, and he's in one of them, and he just makes me die laughing. There's a lot of... I mean, Roberta Calindres, who was in Miss Whitelight, she's solved every... Like, when actors come into a room, you want them to solve all your problems. That's really all you're asking. <laughs> just, it doesn't matter what they do. If they solve... If they just, like, oh, yeah, this is going to work... I would work with her on anything, always. She is so good, and I I don't even know if she wants to be like famous, but she deserves to be, that's for sure. There's so many. Ruth Nega, her work on Preacher is like, oh, God, she's so good. So I've only seen Preacher. I haven't seen 
the film that she got nominated for an Oscar for. Loving? Loving. Loving. Okay. But she's awesome. There's just, there's so many. And the, the cool thing is going through this casting process, I didn't know who Roberta Calindras was before this. And so I now know I want to find someone that isn't broken through yet. There's so many great people there. And you got to go. I mean, you have to watch a lot of painful audition tapes. But I saw a lot of people that aren't household names that are good. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people. They all do different things too. So it's a matter of finding the right fit. But that's the thing actors don't realize. You send in a tape, you never hear from someone. I'm not going to contact someone and be like, you didn't get the role, but let me tell you. you know. But there are people that I've logged, like that person would be so good for this kind of role if yeah. I ever have that again. And they don't, actors don't know that, but that's what people are doing all the time. You've mentioned that you've completed two screenplays. What is coming up for you? What are you excited about? You know, I'm really, really excited about, I want to direct again. It's not like it's been, you know, a long time, but I've got these two scripts. I want to make both of them that I've just finished writing, and they're both very different. I really just want to get on set and do it again. Writing is the thing that I do. It's just built into me. Like, I will always write. If they took away, they canceled movies and theater, I would write fiction. If they canceled that, I would write something else. That's just what I do. Directing to me is like the reward. doesn't feel like it at the time because it is the hardest thing. Like, it drains you. I really want to get on set and keep developing as a director because that's the thing that's I've been writing forever and directing is something I've only been doing for the last couple of years, like three years, and I love it and I just want to I just want to get on set again. One last question I think related to directing first, how did you get into this? It seems like a daunting leap getting into directing from being a writer. Yeah. And what people don't tell you is that once you are known as a writer, People really don't want to give you a chance. You're better off not being known as anything than with Walter. I wanted to direct it, but I had no, there was no justification for me doing so. I had not done anything. Undergrad, I did film school, but like that didn't prepare me for, I made a skit with like four people once, you know, (laughs) that wasn't going to prepare me to go direct a feature film. I got pretty good at writing. So that's where I leaned on. And so people started to know me as a writer. And it became hard to be like, I, I want to direct. I'm like, well, you're a writer. You can't do it. Where, again, if you were just nothing, you could say, I'm a director. And they'd be like, okay. I knew after having had a movie made that I had spent so much time writing and it, I didn't get to control it. And it's not anything negative against the director, Walter. I thought she did a great job. But it wasn't mine anymore. And I didn't want to do that again. I decided, like, unless some money is really good, I'm not going to give that up. It's a tough leap. It's like 17 skill sets. Writing is writing. (laughs) Directing is like really 17 different things. You have to have good taste. You have to know film. You have to have watched a lot of film and just understand like, is this a scene from a movie that I would watch? And then be able to work with people in high pressure situations. If you can go into a, and, and really be in a high pressure situation and be able to still communicate properly, be able to manage time. And I'm able to do those things. So all the other stuff, you know, learning about lenses and learning about just the pluses and minuses of certain types of shots, stuff that like you could watch a movie and be like, I love, I love how that's a six minute wonder. Like that's a cool, it's cool. They never cut. It's like really. And then you get on set and you try to shoot a six minute shot without cuts. And you're like, oh, you gain this really cool thing, but 
suddenly <laughs> there's a million new problems. And so you just learning new stuff like that, it's really exciting for me. It feels to me like writing is just, again, it's like muscle memory. It's a thing that I do. This feels like new territory. It's really exciting. And I feel like I have so much more improvement to make. And that's exciting to me. I, I want that. I can't imagine directing ever getting to a point where it's like, I got this. If it does, I'll, I'll probably want to do something else with it. But it feels like every ounce of you is done when it's over. And that's not something you should do around the clock, but it's good to do that. It's good to just know that you, every so often in your life, to walk away and be like, wow, I've got nothing left. I gave everything I could. That's a nice feeling. And I directing does that for me. And it just feels, it's cool to walk on set and be like, they're, 35 people here, and they're all supporting this idea. That's pretty cool. For, again, writing is very isolated. Like, it's an isolating thing, and I'm always alone. And I prefer that 80% of the time. Like, for my creative stuff, I would like to have that. But it completes the art, <laughs> the cycle of that particular piece of work. And it feels like it's done. And that's nice. Because you don't get that as a writer. You don't get that feeling. Because it just goes on and on. You can finish it. You can finish the thing and then move on to something else, which is really nice. Paul, thank you so much. No, for thank you. Us this today. is great. It's a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Paul Schulberg, the writer and director of The Good Catholic and Ms. Whitelight. Both were filmed in and around Bloomington by Pegasus Pictures a local production company that hopes to inspire the next generation of filmmakers in the state of Indiana. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.